you know, the jury really gave the middle finger to justice. I mean, they didn't bother to deliberate. I mean, we sat here for nine months. We heard all this testimony. We heard all this extraordinary DNA and so forth. And they didn't even bother. That's Dominic Dunn. He was a journalist, film producer, and victim's advocate. He may have been best known as a writer for the magazine Vanity Fair, where he chronicled the behind-the-scenes events of the O.J. Simpson murder trial. You know, Judge Ito, I will always be grateful to Judge Ito for giving me the seat in the courtroom that he gave me. And I believe he seated me next to the Goldman family because of my own personal situation. Dominic Dunn certainly knew heartbreaking loss. His daughter, Dominique, was a beautiful young actress with a promising career who was strangled to death by her ex-boyfriend, a man with a violent past. It happened in the driveway of her home, and when police arrived on the scene, the ex-boyfriend was standing over Dominique's unconscious body and told officers, I killed my girlfriend. His lawyer convinced a jury that the whole thing was an accident and he was only convicted of involuntary manslaughter and served less than four years. Dominic Dunn was left without his daughter and without justice. I grew to know the Goldmans very well and to become very, very close to them. They are a wonderful family. Kim Goldman, the sister of Ron, became the conscience of the trial. She's an extraordinary young woman. And Fred Goldman is a great man. I understood the rage that he was feeling. I understood when there's no place to explode to when you watch what was happening in that courtroom. Where other journalists may have been more cautious or tried to maintain objectivity, Dominic had no time for those rules. He spoke his piece the day after the verdict when asked what he thought of O.J. Simpson. I think he is a man who got away with murder. I think what we have seen here is all the justice that money can buy. I think this is an extraordinary American experience that we have witnessed for the last nine months. This is Confronting O.J. Simpson. I'm your host, Kim Goldman. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Kim... One thing that stood out to me when we heard Dominic Dunn at the beginning was the anger in his voice. I mean, this was personal for him. Yeah. I know you had a very special relationship. Tell us about that. 
I met Dominic at the criminal courts building. He was seated next to us. I think that was a gift from Judge Ito. I had no idea who Dominic was, but he was such a sweet man. He was very loving. And he took kindly to my dad and I and took me specifically under his wing and was just always a pillar of strength. Did he give you any insight in the courtroom? You know, he was learning who the players were right along with me. He gave me some, you know, he loved to gossip. That was sort of his thing. He would always crack jokes about the attorneys. He's also the one that helped me find the name for the killer. I was so frustrated hearing all of the reporters and journalists refer to him as OJ. And I was pissed because it was so informal and so casual. And he said, well, he's a killer. That's what he is. He's a murderer. And I said, yeah. He said, that's what we're going to call him. And so that's sort of how that happened. We used to see him every day. But one day I just told him that I... I loved his writing, and I read everything he wrote, and he kissed me on the forehead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he must have stood on his tippy toes because he was a little man. And I'm a very tall person, so it was quite amusing. One of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou, it's not necessarily what someone says, it's how they make you feel. Dominic just always embraced me, both emotionally and spiritually, and I always knew I could go to him. It was just a look on his face. It was an arm around me. It was a handhold. It was just... It's just pure love. There were so many journalists around. And you became close to two in particular, Dan Abrams and Shireen Megami. There were so many that loitered in the hallway, but there was only a couple that stood out to me as people that I felt like I could trust. I don't know if it was because Dan Abrams and Shireen Megami were close in age to me, and maybe I thought that there was a kinship there, or maybe it was just because they were good people and I felt that. Let's start with Dan. He's a media mogul now. And he's chief legal affairs anchor for ABC News. Dan, so obviously we've known each other for about 25 years now. I met you when you were a budding young journalist on Court TV. Can you explain for people who don't know what Court TV was back then? It was a live trial network. And back then, it was this weird thing that people were suddenly shocked that you could watch a trial. So would you say that this case launched your career? There's no question. I mean, look, this case was a seminal case for me. I was two years out of law school. This was the first major case that I had covered. Was there a moment when you were like, oh my God, holy shit, this is this is going to be life-changing? I think the moment that I thought, wow, was when People Magazine did a who's who in the trial, and I was one of the media, and at the time... People Magazine was a really big deal. And I remember when that article came out and seeing my picture in People Magazine thinking, this is crazy. You were one of the members of the media who experienced the quiet inside the courtroom. And then you had to go face the chaos of Camp OJ outside. Was that like night and day? Inside the courtroom of the Simpson case, it was all quiet and serene. But outside the courthouse was just a different experience than anything I've ever seen, and I've never seen anything like it since. There were people not just hawking T-shirts and Judge Ito jello molds. Then they were selling a watch uh-huh. with the police chasing the Bronco as the hands on the on the watch. It was mayhem. Yeah. We would be in the hallway and there was just media everywhere. I mean, you just, I remember having to check in the bathroom stalls because I didn't feel like I was safe. Yeah. We would follow the attorneys into the men's room. And I remember some of the female journalists, rightly, complaining that that was unfair. Any morsel of information was 
considered valuable. Did you have any feelings of guilt or innocence before you started covering the case? I wanted to believe he didn't do it. I really did. I was an O.J. Simpson fan as a kid, as a player. I can't say as an actor, but, but as a player. So I really wanted to believe he didn't do it. So what, what swayed you? The fact that there were so many different pieces of evidence, from the glove that was found, to the motive, to the blood, to the footprint being the same size, to Nicole's domestic violence pictures that she put in her safe just in case something just like this happened. So the photos that Nicole kept of her bruises when Simpson beat her? Yeah. Every single piece of evidence implicated him. Nicole kept photos of herself swollen and with bruises from the beating she received at the hands of OJ. They were in her safe deposit box, along with letters of apology from OJ. It appears she wanted to keep a record. Do you remember a time during the case where you thought, that's it, that's where they're gonna get their conviction? I mean, I think the mixed blood in the Bronco that had Nicole's blood and Ron's blood and Simpson's blood, when we saw that, I was like, come on. How can you possibly explain that if he wasn't involved? This was the evidence even the most diehard O.J. Simpson supporter couldn't ignore. A senior criminalist from the California Department of Justice DNA Laboratory testified that three blood smears taken from the center console in the Bronco showed genetic markers that matched OJ, Nicole, and Ron. The Bronco, that Bronco, the getaway car. I say to people who have questions, they say, well, you know, at the end of the case, I still had questions. I say to them, did you follow the civil case? Because if you did, you can't have any questions after that case. Right. There was additional evidence that came in the civil case. The, the most damning one, of course, that he was wearing the, quote, ugly-ass shoes he said he never would have worn. Right. In a Buffalo Bills newsletter from eight months before the murders. If Bruno Magley makes shoes that look like the shoes they had in court that's involved in this case, I would have never worn those ugly-ass shoes. And he was wearing those ugly-ass shoes that also happened to be the exact same size based on the, on the bloody footprint. I don't even view it as controversial. I don't just think he did it. I know he did it. It's almost never that I will say that. But back then, weren't you supposed to be reporting with some kind of objectivity? I did. Look, and by the way, and by the way, back then, I and many of my colleagues thought he would probably be found not guilty at the end of the criminal case. I felt like the media was bending over backwards to give credence to the defense arguments. Right. So you sat in the courtroom every day like I did. I was grateful for the media, but then I also resented it because I think people were playing to the cameras and to the media. In this trial, the camera was a big factor. The lawyers, I felt, were angling based on where the camera was because the coverage was so ubiquitous. So I remember with you specifically that you would say, you know, I, I this is how I feel, but I got to go on camera and say this. And I remember you saying, did I? No, wait, wait, wait. 
But I never, I never would say that I have to go on camera and say something different no, than I've no, 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 no. I think I just had to go on camera and not express Correct. my personal views Correct. and just report on the facts of what was said in court. I'm sorry. Thank you for clarifying. That's, that's, that's what I meant. And that's the sentiment. But there were times that I think all of you were like struggling with, with what you felt personally and what your job was, was to record the facts. The challenge exactly as you're laying it out, it was that we were living this I mean, we were there for a year and then back to the civil case. I mean, you know, I lived in Los Angeles on and off for almost two years. It does become personal. And, you know, the impact is much greater than it would be ordinarily. The verdict came in after three and a half hours of deliberating. I was by myself in the house. And I remember panicking, and I talked to you at some point, and you told me what you thought. I remember going into it thinking, oh, you know, I, don't, I think they're going to have a hard time getting a conviction. I think it could be a hung jury is probably the best bet here, but it's possible if you get an acquittal. I don't think they're going to get a conviction. When it was so quick, I was like, oh, wow, all right. Maybe it was just that obvious that he did it. Then the verdict came. We, the jury, find the defendant, Orenthal James Simpson, not guilty of the crime of murder upon Ronald Lyle Goldman. Some of the media journalists were saying that they had a hard time pulling themselves together to be able to go on camera afterwards. That's partly because we were watching you. The emotion from your family hearing you and your dad sobbing was a very painful thing. June 13th, 94. Was the um, worst nightmare of my life. This is the second. I will forever be proud of my son and my family. Thank you. This isn't about O.J. Simpson. This is about the victims. Leaving that courtroom and hearing you and seeing you and seeing your dad, that wasn't easy. You and I became friends. I think that we became good friends at that time. Do you feel like that hit you harder because we were friends? No, because, I mean, honestly, I became friends with, you know, Robert Shapiro, too. In a different way, I can't tell you how many times I had dinner or social events with some of the defense team. Okay, you could just, like, now wound my ego right now. Like, I thought I was special. Come on. I mean, you had Passover at my house, dude. We invited you for some matzah, you know? Um, my point is living this trial for as long as we did was different than the ordinary case you cover. Honestly, I compare the relationship with the other journalists to like having been roommates in a college dorm together because that's how often we saw each other. This was the center of our lives and we were all there all the time. You guys were there and living and hearing it and seeing the, 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 the pictures and the crime scene photos and the autopsy. Like, I always wondered how it impacted you. Look, if you can't hack 
covering the ugliness of what is criminal trials. You shouldn't do what I do. A lot of careers were born out of this case. When I listen to you and when I watch you, you are one of the people that I have always looked up to and respected as a journalist. You always have maintained your honor and your integrity, and I've seen some others that haven't, and so thank you. That obviously is very meaningful uh, coming from you, and you know I have enormous admiration for both you and your dad uh, for what you guys went through. I, got, I started getting really pissed at some of the people who were many years after the case when you guys were trying to enforce any aspect of the civil judgment, sort of saying, oh, you know, you need to drop it. Just, just leave it. Let it be. Why? Why should they drop it? Why should they leave it be? Why is that enough? Oh, well, it's been, you know, so long and this. Yeah, but you know what? You want, you want us to accept the criminal verdict? Then you accept the civil verdict. <laughs> Sorry, but that's the, way, that's the way it works. I don't know anyone who would just be able to get over it. The purpose of the punitive damage statute is to punish the defendant. This jury felt that the defendant was going to earn a lot of money in the future and that he should not profit having killed two people. You got to accept both verdicts. The only way to punish him is to make him pay. There's no other way. The criminal justice system makes someone pay by putting them behind bars. And the civil justice system makes someone pay by taking away their money. Do you feel like this case shaped how you cover trials today? There's no question. I mean, look, I definitely learned an enormous amount of lessons from it. You know, I remember during the Michael Jackson case, someone said, this is going to be the next OJ. I said, no, it's not. There's never going to be another OJ Simpson case. It was a perfect storm. It was media coverage. It was the fact that cable news was brand new. So there was this whole novelty of watching a trial. It was one of the most famous people in America on trial for murder, double murder. It had race issues. It had domestic violence. It had a police department that had a checkered path when the verdict was announced. The country literally came to a standstill. All of these things came together in a way that will never come together again. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Nancy, you covered the trial. Yeah, from beginning to end. Do you remember what kind of conversations you were having with journalists back then about what was going on inside the courtroom? People would talk about moments that were misused on the day of trying on the gloves. A lot of people there felt that the gloves did, in fact, fit. And a lot of people felt that the prosecution was just 
outmatched. And not because they weren't smart, just because they weren't out there trashing everybody. However, it was also very helpful for journalists because these guys were out there every single day saying something that was newsworthy. Yeah. And then you have the opposite side where the prosecutors wanted to try their case inside the courtroom and not on the courtroom steps. Exactly. No doubt of that. So let's talk about Shireen. How did you guys become so close? I remember Shireen very vividly. She had great hair. (laughs) She was always very well put together, full makeup, these fancy suits and two big bags that she would carry with her with a bottle of water and her her notebook. But she was just someone that I, I connected with. And we grew to be very close and have stayed friends for 25 years. So... So it was my first job out of college, City News Service. It was a kind of like the local wire service. So it went to all the all the stations, all the newspapers, everybody got City News Service. And so before the trial even started, I knew Chris Darden, I knew Marsha Clark, I knew Judge Ito. There was only six reporters who had permanent full-time seats, and I got to be one of them. And because of that, you were sprung into the national spotlight. The first time I was on national TV or big, big TV thing was actually with um, Katie Couric on the Today Show after Um, the opening mm -hmm. statements. And then I went on and and Katie asked me what the jurors thought of Johnny Cochran's opening statement. And I thought, well, that's the dumbest question. (laughs) And I may have rolled my eyes and flipped my hair a little, but I said, (laughs) well, Katie, it's difficult to read minds. (laughs) I never was asked to be on NBC again. That's hilarious. (laughs) One of my original notebooks from when the trial first happened or when it was first happening, I spelled Kardashian wrong. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, those were innocent days. We didn't know how to spell Kardashian. Oh. <laughs> that was just capital K. Yeah. yeah. Robert Kardashian was a buddy of Simpson's. He was a lawyer but didn't practice. He reinstated his law license just to support his friend as a member of the defense, the Dream Team. It was in many ways like the original kind of reality TV. Because sometimes it didn't feel real. It felt like you were part of some big show. And then I would sit next to you or I would see a crime scene photo and it was like, oh, this is, this is as real as it gets. I remember you sat on the left of Dominic Dunn. I was on the right and I just, I always felt safe with you and Dominic Dunn, you, you guys were like my people. You represented something to me at that time that was honest and good and ethical. Was it hard for you to to walk the line with us and the Browns and then know that you still had a job to do and that you were still mm-hmm. there to be objective? And- it was hard. I always struggled with it, to be honest, um, even then, because, right, it made my career. And I always struggled with the times where it was cool and it was fun and it was the big story. And I was like, but it's because two people were murdered. And I know their families. And and so it was like, it was hard. So you know how that courtroom was so So, so small. Yeah. And um, you would see things and you would hear things that you just, they couldn't capture on TV. For example, the morning of the verdict, do you remember what obviously like that morning was like? Yeah. How insane it was. When we came in the room, I think you guys were already in the room, everyone was like crying, right? It was just so much tension. You felt the tension outside. Simpson sat to the left of me and his son, Jason, was crying. I remember he was hunched over, he was crying. And his mother, Eunice, was like, you know, they were all crying. And they brought the jury in. And it was Lionel. Lionel Lionel, Cryer. Lionel Uh Cryer. 
looked at the defense and just bare, it was almost imperceptible, closed his eyes a little and just nodded a little. Uh. <gasps> and I was like, I knew that moment that it was not guilty. There was nothing I could do. And I was like, oh my God, like he gave the signal. Well, Dominic, you know, Dominic turned to me after the verdict and said, what happened? I had to take his hand because he was like falling apart and said, I'm, he was acquitted. Um, it was not guilty. And he's like, no, no. I said, yes, it was. He's like, no, no, the son of a bitch. He, he got away with it. I was like, I, I, I think so. Aww. He's like, no, 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 it can't be. I'm like, it's okay, Dominic, it'll be okay. He's Aww. like, no, it won't. If you ever go back and you look at the pictures of the verdict, if you see my face and what I'm looking over to, the, I was actually looking at you. I remember thinking, I hope she doesn't die. Like your grief was so big and so like overwhelming. And I was just like, I wanted to go over and hug you. And I was so worried that you were just gonna lose it so bad and that your dad was gonna like jump over the thing. I was worried about that at the same time. I remember just thinking it was so irrational that like you were going to drop dead there. It was so overwhelming. It was like one of the most dramatic moments of my life. The whole world was involved. It, yeah. it, it's, it's really bizarre. A lot of people will say that, you know, had Marsha and Chris been able to, you know, put XYZ evidence on. Everybody was a prosecutor. Everybody. I had this family member, like my mom's cousin, and she would um, record every, like the whole trial on VHS tapes, <laughs> right? And then she would like hear testimony and she'd go back and she'd find it and she'd play. And I was like, oh my God. You know, and she's like, they should have done this. They can go back. And you know, yeah. people were so invested and you could still see that. It was even harder in the civil trial because OJ Simpson was around. Yeah. And he was like free and people would just chat him up and get laugh and you know, and I was having yeah. carpal tunnel and he was right. just like, Oh, I've had problems with my hands before too, and Shereen and let me what's going on? I was just like, Please don't touch me. Yeah. Um, with those hands. So it was even harder then, because at least in the in the criminal trial, like you couldn't talk to him. He was there. But right. just to have him like out and about during the civil trial was really jarring. And so when it was over, it was like, whoa, it was hard. Yeah. We went from, you know, being just a regular, obscure, nothing family to all of this. And then it, it was nonstop. And it wasn't until probably after the civil case, actually, that when everybody went away, I was just lost. Yeah. I, I was completely out of my element. I, I think that was the first time that I actually started to grieve my brother. I was going to say, you probably, that was like when you really had to deal with your yeah. grief. It's like, it was like, it's like how most people after the funeral, they deal with it, but your funeral was like two years yeah. long, kind of. And then everybody went away. Yeah. And then nobody needed us anymore for comments. Nobody yeah. needed us anymore for stories. And I suddenly felt completely isolated, yeah. completely abandoned. I can see that. Completely. And, and that was such a weird That feeling. must have been so hard. Why do you think people are still so connected to the story all these years later that you're still feeling like you have to talk about it? And I know it's not just me because I know you've done other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thought about that a lot the past couple of years when it all came back out. And I think it's still very relevant. The trial raised big societal issues, put a spotlight on them. 
the role of police and racial politics still so relevant, more relevant than ever. The role, influence, and power of celebrity still so relevant. You have to remember that Harvey Weinstein is not just any producer, any filmmaker. He is one of the titans of this industry. You know, we can't live in this world that's like the Cosby situation where all these women come forward and no one does anything. Then it's five people and 10 people and 20 people and 30 people. And it takes like 50 people before people think, oh, maybe Cosby did it. Is there any part that like just stays back that just like ruminates in the back and you pull from it in order to teach your kids life lessons? I remember at the time thinking about, you know, Marsha Clark, that I thought that she was like so not that nice and so tough and she wouldn't talk to us. Right. But like, look what she was going through behind the scenes. All the main players in the Simpson trial, of course, have become so familiar that even the slightest change gets noticed, commented on, and analyzed. We're talking about Marsha Clark's hairstyle. First long and curly, then for most of the Is trial, short and curly. Both sides. Then yesterday, soft and short and the struggle that she was going through. Prosecutor Marsha Clark is involved in not one but two battles tonight. One, of course, the O.J. Simpson case, the other, her personal battle with her ex-husband for custody of their children. I think from being a reporter and covering so many people's stories at some of their most difficult moments of their lives and most tragic moments of their lives and then seeing people, like, judge them after, you know? Right. It's like, what I try to teach my boys is everyone's struggling with something. Everyone has a story. Yeah. I'm sorry that we had to meet under yeah. those circumstances. I always wished it was different, but I feel lucky that we've been able to stay connected all these years. I think it's a testament to our connection and what yeah. we went through, and so. Well, I, I appreciate that you're still willing to talk about it after all this time. Oh. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Schleife is an attorney and a television executive who ran Court TV and currently helms Discovery ID. He has a different perspective of the O.J. Simpson trial and how it impacted television coverage of trials and our culture. It's hard to believe 25 years. I know. It seems like just yesterday, although it feels like a lifetime ago. You know, it was the very first time for most citizens uh, to see our system of justice, a, a system that is not always so just. The average person, I would say, have never really seen a real trial, never had the experience of, uh, of something like this. So this was really unique. The cameras really provided a wide-angle view of our justice system. 
Henry, I was in the courtroom every day because I wanted justice for Ron. I was there to represent my brother. What about this case drew everyone out? Was it the celebrity aspect that captivated the public? Was it that he ran? Kim, uh, in that trial, you had a cast of characters that I don't think has ever been duplicated. The iconic sports hero, your brother, young kid who's vibrant and 25 years old, a beautiful model mother of two. And then you start throwing in the defense counsel and this dream team and the prosecution and Judge Ito. You put all those characters together uh, and then you throw in literally a, a chase scene. You throw in evidence that leads to cute little sayings. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You had a combination, a confluence of characters and elements there right. that has never been duplicated. Honestly, Henry, without the cameras, I don't think people would have believed the nonsense that went on in that courtroom. It was our job at Court TV to prove that the cameras at most really held up a mirror to the circus that that trial became. Frankly, it took a fair number of years to convince judges around the country that the benefits of transparency, the benefits of that sunshine being the best disinfectant, far outweighed any of the negative aspects. I completely agree. I've always said, thank God there were cameras in that courtroom. At least the country knew what happened in there. Did our trial inform any of your work? Did it influence you as a programmer? That was really one of the first cases uh, when you look at literally the murder of those two people involved and especially of Nicole Simpson. That was the quintessential example of domestic violence. Nicole made this 911 call about eight months before she was murdered. 911 emergency. Can you get someone over here now to 325 Gretna Green? He's back. Okay. Thank what is, you. Wait a minute. We're sending the police. What is he doing? Is he threatening you? I'm going nuts. I'm going to beat the shit. Wait a minute. Wait. Just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there, okay? Okay, Nicole? Uh huh. I don't think that was an issue that many of us were familiar with. I agree. I, I agree with that. We've for years now told so many of these stories where unfortunately their fact situation is not totally dissimilar to that in the OJ trial. But we've always tried to tell it through the perspective and, and honor the victims first. We kind of speak for the victim and hope the whole investigation is around finding closure uh, on behalf of the family of the victim. I think it's an important issue, and I think what we do makes me very proud to be at this network. Henry, thank you so much for your perspective. Well, I'm very happy to, and I think what you're doing is really, really something that you should be proud of. Kim, at the top of the show, we said that we want to talk about the press's role because this trial changed the media forever. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's hard to believe, but 25 years ago, cable wasn't really a thing. I mean, less than 10% of the viewing audience was watching cable. But the only way they could get the trial was to watch it constantly because gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage was available on CNN, Court TV, and even on the E! Channel. Right. CNN's ratings went up more than 700%. And then, after the trial was over, everything changed. 
suddenly, 40% of the audience wasn't watching network TV anymore. They were watching cable. It was the birth of the cable boom. People, you know, just like when we would watch those tabloid shows, you know, I think we want to think that our life is okay when you watch someone else's trauma. You know, it, it allows you to escape your own existence for a while if you're watching somebody else's. Absolutely. I think also people really want stories where justice is served. That I 100% agree. the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson. We are en route to sit down and meet with jurors that voted not guilty. I didn't want to do it. And then when they sat everybody else and I ended up staying there, I was like, what did I just get myself into? That deliberation was already set long before they started asking. So that was all BS? All this is about is these people want to leave. Shapiro, yeah, I like to get a hold of his ass. Everybody runs into somebody somewhere. One day our paths will cross. I really don't want to have to tell you this. Why? Here's what happened. I, I do believe for a fact that he definitely did go and he killed him. It does affect me to this day. Boy, this is hard. I have a lot to digest. It's a good <laughs> thing I have an hour ride home. Can't wait for the next episode of Confronting O.J. Simpson? Listen to episode six right now and ad-free when you sign up for Wondery Plus at wondery.com slash plus. That's W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear episode six of Confronting O.J. Simpson. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at at Confronting Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussions from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever platform you listen to podcasts. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Confronting O.J. Simpson is executive produced by me, Kim Goldman, and my co-host, Nancy Glass. Along with executive producers, Ben Fetterman and Andrea Gunning, supervising producer, Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark and Chris O'Ryan. Story producer, Tony Davis. Audio editing done by lead editor, Matt Delvecchio, and editor, Dean Welsh. The archive, research, and production team includes Jamie Richard, Megan Paisley, Jessica Little, and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kenny Kohler and Mark Downing. Bart McCatchy was the post-supervising producer. Audio mix done by Dave Saya, assisted by Dale Epperson. Music and original composition created by My Music. And special thanks to Laurent Joven at Migrate Sound. Confronting O.J. Simpson was produced by Glass Entertainment Group in partnership with Wondery. Some material, including court testimony, was edited for time. Before you head over to the next episode, I want to let you know that episode six is no longer available. We are sorry about that, but we at Glass Entertainment are confident that you will enjoy episode seven and you won't feel like you've missed out. 
I'm Elena, an autopsy technician. And I'm Ash, a hairstylist. And we just love swapping stories about all of the morbid things that fascinate us. And if you do too, join us on our podcast, Morbid. It's a safe space to let your weirdo flag fly. On Morbid, we cover dark historical events, sinister science, unnerving paranormal events, and sordid high society murders. We also dive deep into the most notorious crimes in history. Our podcast is grounded in rigorous and painstaking research. We're also not afraid to read a (laughs) We keep it weird because a dash of snark is necessary to get through grotesque true tales of demented minds. So follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.